We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, which is on page 809 in the Pew Bibles. It reads this way. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Calvary family. It's good to be with you all this morning. It really is a gift uh, to hear the stories uh, that we've had over the last couple weeks. And so I hope you guys are able to receive it as such. And so thank you, John, uh, for sharing with us this morning and giving us just a window into your relationship with Christ. And I'm sure many of us have different ways we can connect with that. So thank you again. Appreciate that, John. We are in the middle of an Advent series over the last couple weeks. And the title of our series is The Light has come. And so what I want to do this morning uh, as we continue on with this series, uh, just to give you a little bit of a heads up, is connect stories. That's the main thing I want to do is connect stories. Uh, So we have here Matthew talking about Jesus. He connects it to a time of Isaiah, which I want to then take both of those and connect those to our own stories and lives. I think there are meaningful and powerful connections between what was going on in Jesus' time, what was going on in Isaiah's time, and what was going on right now in our time. So we're going to connect stories today. First, I want to understand that as we look at this series, The Light Has Come, it's important for us to understand that light is a very important image in the Christian faith. The image of light gives us hope. The image of light in the story of the Bible carries with it hope for peace, justice, liberation, wholeness, joy, and ultimately true flourishing lives. And yet we are all confronted in the midst of wanting something greater. We are all confronted with Darkness, evil, and unfortunately, even death. Today, we are going to see that the image of light, though, carries with it a rescue from death. That death is not the end of the story. In our text today, Matthew refers back to a prophecy in the Old Testament, in Isaiah. And so in Isaiah's prophecy, he warns Israel that a time is coming when the people of Galilee will experience a life 
dominated and full of darkness, suffering, doom, anguish, and even death. In many ways, death is the completion of a life of darkness and suffering. And unfortunately, as we see in Israel's history, the people who lived in the north of Palestinian land in Galilee, specifically Zebulun and Naphtali, were the first to be captured and go into exile in 733 BC. And during their exile, they experienced darkness and death. They experienced horrible atrocities. Yet Isaiah promises to these same people, these people of Galilee in the north of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali, that darkness and death is not the end of the story. Isaiah promises that light will come. The most meaningful and hopeful image for people who are in utter darkness and in the shadows of death in the Christian story is light. Light. And so, Isaiah promises that on them, light will shine. And so, as we read in Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness, who once walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shone. So Isaiah shares that this great light that will shine on them will actually be in the form of a child. Many of us are familiar with the Christmas prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. This child will have a government that will be upon his shoulders. This weight of a government that executes justice and peace will be on this child. And this child will be known as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is the hope and the promise in the midst of brokenness and darkness and death that Israel holds on to. This is the part of the story of the Bible that Matthew connects with. That Matthew connects to Jesus in their own time and in their own story. Matthew reveals to us the same truth that John records to us, that Jesus is this light. Jesus is the light of the world. And so Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this longing and this prophecy that in the midst of darkness and death, light and life will come. It is important to note that those connections of darkness and death and light 
and life. What makes light so hopeful is that it will produce life. It will redeem life. And as we see in the rest of the New Testament, this light promised to Galilee is also for every tribe, language, people, and nation. The impact and extent of the light is consistently greater than we could have ever imagined or expected. The promised light in Isaiah 9 was never intended to be geographically bound. The promised light is intended for all who have any experience or touch with darkness and the pending doom of death. The looming reality of death is shared by all creation. The peace and goodness that is going to start in Galilee is also intended for all creation. We'll come back to this. I also want us to see that the reach and extent of the light is surprising, but so also is the start of where the light shines is surprising. I think it's helpful for us to see that Jesus goes to Galilee to start his public ministry. Now that may seem happenstance for most of us as maybe we don't have familiarity with what each territory in Israel and their history meant. Prior to Jesus withdrawing to Galilee though, he was already in Judea in the south. Jesus was in the wilderness of Judea for his baptism as we see in chapter 3 and then his temptations in the beginning of chapter 4. With Jerusalem, though, being at the center of Jewish religion and politics, it would have just been easier for Jesus to stay in Judea and to begin his ministry there and go right to the center. But after finding out that Jesus, excuse me, finding out that John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus knew he needed to leave Judea. And so Jesus withdraws to the north to Zebulun and Naphtali of Galilee. Galilee, while, as we saw in Isaiah 9, prophesied to receive this great light, would not have been the most obvious place for God to do a special work. We see in John's gospel, he clarifies for us, That while Jesus himself being Galilean, he grew up in Nazareth, and Jesus' ministry being based out of Galilee, those weren't helpful for Jesus to legitimize his work in ministry. In fact, the fact that Jesus was born in Galilee and based his ministry out of Galilee was evidence that he was an illegitimate leader for Israel. Galilee would have been a strange place for God to do a special work. It would have been more natural for him to choose the center of Jewish faith and religion in Jerusalem. But instead, he went to Galilee. Galilee was geographically, spiritually, and politically far from Jerusalem. And in fact, even in the recent history before Jesus was born, Galilee had a reputation for being revolutionaries, which is not a positive thing. Rome hated revolutionaries. 
And yet Judas of Galilee, who was just before Jesus of Nazareth, tried to lead a revolt against the Roman government and brought nothing to Galilee but defeat and shame. There was a basic distrust of Galileans. And yet this is where Jesus goes to begin his ministry. We see a couple of reasons as to why Jesus went to Galilee. First of all, we already have realized in Matthew's connection to Isaiah that part of the reason why Jesus finds himself in Galilee is a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah said he was going to go to Galilee. But also there's practical reasons, as we see in our text. Jesus is in the wilderness of Judea, gets through the baptism and the temptation, finds out that John the Baptist is arrested and realizes, I can't stay here. And so out of his own safety, flees and goes up to Galilee. But also there's maybe another reason, not just the fulfillment of a redemptive plan, not just practically to keep, his self, keep himself alive, but also it feels very consistent with the whole story of the Bible that God would attach himself to the margins to begin to do something special. It's consistent with how God works. He often starts where we consider to be irrelevant. We see this even as Luke records when Jesus is entering into the world in his birth that the glory of the Lord goes to lowly shepherds out in the field. This is where God does spectacular things. So this is a little bit of the story of Jesus as it relates to the story of Isaiah. But the question is, how do we connect with this? How do we connect with an ancient promise to an ancient people? Well, there's a very basic connection. And that is the threat of darkness and the shadow of death that loomed over Galileans in Isaiah's world and Jesus' world still looms over us in our world. In fact, while we've extended life in some parts of the world a little bit longer, we still haven't figured it out. Death looms for all of us. That is our connection to the ancient world and the promise of Isaiah. But also we have another connection. The same promise of hope and light extends to us today. So even though the looming reality of death faces each and every one of us and the ability to overcome it, we've all done a pretty poor job at in the human race, because one person, Jesus of Nazareth, defeated death, so can we. The same promise of hope and light extends to us. In Christ, death is not the end of our story. There can be life after death. But we tend to try and ignore the reality of darkness and death. And I think for good reasons. 
even now as we talk about it, it doesn't feel great. It feels heavy. And even as we have stories of death come to our minds, we're live time trying to push them away, whether the death of a person or the death of a relationship or the death of a season of life that felt good. We tend to ignore, try to ignore these realities. But you're in good company. We all do that. <laughs> it's against the grain of why we were created to experience darkness and death. It is hard. It is sad. It leaves us vulnerable and uncomfortable. For just a moment, would you do one thing with me? Would you close your eyes? can open them. Just a little bit of darkness feels vulnerable. We can't see. For some of us, as I'm asking you to close your eyes, you just take one last quick look around to see if anyone else is doing it too. And you're sitting there in the silence wondering, please tell me this isn't going to go for like a solid minute. It's uncomfortable. We feel like we don't have control. And then we open our eyes and it's like, okay, it wasn't that long. It wasn't too bad. And so darkness, even in the slightest of moments, leaves us vulnerable. But because darkness has so complicated our human experience, for some of us, it actually feels safe. For some of us, it's actually the light that feels scary. Why? Because the light reveals. The light shows. And maybe some things we don't want to yield. Maybe some things feel better hidden. And even as... John was sharing for us earlier. Sometimes light can actually liberate, even when we don't think it will. To be able to confess and admit the struggles and weaknesses we have. Because as the body of Christ, we're supposed to receive each other's weaknesses as Christ receives our weaknesses. Listen to this quote. The God who is Trinity reveals himself to be none other than a communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. So God, who is Trinity, reveals himself to be nothing other than a communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. This means, what does that mean? God is outgoing and effusive by very nature. His orientation being naturally with, to, and for the other. And so while light 
reveals both good and evil, we can entrust the light of Christ to shine on us because it's not looking to do evil. Even if it hurts, and even if it's painful, and even if it's uncomfortable, this God who by very nature is effusive in his love toward us is looking to heal, is looking to restore, is looking to bring hope and peace, the Prince of Peace. The kingdom of light, as Jesus was launching in Galilee, continues today. In that moment, Jesus is saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we have in this, as we think about the story of Matthew and Jesus, the story of Israel and our story, the same connection and calling. And that is repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's the kind of kingdom, the kind of kingdom that's coming is the kind of kingdom that we see in the prophecy that brings light to shadows of death. And so our response, our calling, as we come to grips with the coming kingdom of God, is not that a kingdom taking over another kingdom which is looking to take life, but this kingdom is so different. This kingdom is coming to take over by giving life. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he's about to go on a path to give life. I think oftentimes... When we think of repentance, we think of that one really, really nagging sin that holds us a little too tight. And we think, if I don't really, really ask for forgiveness for it this time, then I don't truly mean it. And I'm not truly repentant. But I don't think that's the case. How God works in your life to change and form you, given your existing struggles with sin, is what happens after repentance. Repentance is simply, as we see in this text, returning instead of pursuing self and your own kingdom and your ways of constructing how the world can be fixed. It's repenting of that and going to Jesus' way of you being fixed and the world being fixed. That is repentance. It is the daily, to use John's language, attunement to Christ's values for you and Christ's kingdom for you and this world. And so we daily repent, attuning to the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom not of taking life, but of giving life. And that is our responsibility, our personal responsibility is to repent. Some of you here this morning, maybe you're frustrated with the church, but you're giving it a few last opportunities because you've been hurt by the church. I sympathize with that. Perhaps 
I've been someone that's hurt you. Maybe I've said things that have frustrated and hurted you, hurt you. Or maybe other people in this church have said things or done things, or maybe someone in another church. We're not exempt from doing that kind, those kinds of things. But don't give up on Christ, even if you want to give up on us. <laughs> and may we together continue toward Christ. I call you that you will find no other way to find peace and hope in this world than through the Son of God. Or maybe you're just a true skeptic. You think all of this is irrelevant and we just die when we die. I hold for you that darkness and death is not the end of the human story. But that God in Christ opens for us life through the shining of his light in our lives and in the world. And maybe you're here as a believer in Christ and you're just struggling along and you joyfully and willingly receive the light of Christ but it gets frustrating at times, I just encourage you to stay on the path. To stay on the path. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Pursue Christ. And as we pursue Christ, we pray together. As Jesus said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We ask for God's kingdom to come, God's will to be done on earth as it already is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning confessing that there are so many complexities to this life that we just don't have answers for. We can't figure out, we can't fix. And they leave us frustrated, angry, discouraged. And yet we know that you have not left the world in that way. That because of your son, because of your love, we have hope. We have hope that you have not given up on us and you hope, we have hope that you've not given up on this world. And that it is your desire to fix. It is your desire to heal. It is your desire to redeem. So Father, I pray that each and every breath that is being breathed in this room right now, every heart that is pulsing, would each and every one of us come before you, repenting of our ways of pursuing self, but instead pursue you. And may, as we pursue you, we find joy in loving our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.